HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from roughly 12 to 12.45 every Tuesday in the back of Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn on the Heritage Radio Network. Call all of your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Jack, I hear we already have a caller. Is this true? Yes. Caller, you are on the air. Hey, uh, I had a reverse verification question for you. Messed around with it for the first time this last weekend and had a miserable failure. Before I waste a bunch more, I wanted to see uh, if you had any recommendations. All right, before you start, uh, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, spherification is the technique where you make uh, little balls out of things using a hydrocolloid. The most famous one is uh, sodium alginate. Uh, the problem with that is that the balls turn solid over time and they're unpleasant if they're solid because the alginate steals all the flavor. So there's a technique called reverse spherification where you basically form just a thin layer of uh, alginate gel around a liquid and it stays liquid in the center forever, but it's a more difficult technique. All right, so shoot, what's the problem? Okay, well, I guess, uh, first of all, working with the distilled water for the, for the bath, um, I guess my sodium citrate, maybe, is what seemed to be settling out of it. Um, I didn't notice it until after I had blended it and was trying to pour it into the bath. I didn't think there was enough left in the bottom. I went ahead and, and proceeded with it anyway. Uh, so it may have been a, uh, a week uh, sodium bath, I guess using both the sodium alginate and sodium citrate in the in the bath. Um, how sensitive is that to... Um, okay, so... Uh, in, all right, so again, so people don't know what we're talking about. In your... When you're doing a reverse purification, your flavor has a calcium source in it, and the bath that you drop that flavor into has alginate, and then usually something to stabilize the alginate in it. And... Uh, and that alginate then forms an instant kind of envelope around your flavor. Now, before we go any further, sodium citrate should not settle out. Are you you're using you said distilled water? Uh, correct, distilled water and a and a stick blender. Right. So the sodium citrate shouldn't uh, come out of it, and you shouldn't have a problem with the alginate in the bath. Um, the 
Uh, I mean, I, I don't use really citrate. Citrate is is sodium citrate acts in two ways. It's a it's a pH buffer. Right, because uh, the alginate doesn't want the pH to go too low. If it does, it'll start gelling and turning goopy and ropey on you. And it's a it acts somewhat as a sequestrant, which means it it, it binds um, excess calcium in there. But a lot of that sequestering activity is really due to more of its buffering capacity. If you want a really good sequestrant, you want to move to sodium uh, hexametaphosphate shrimp, which is available, I believe, uh, through uh, our one of our sponsors, uh, Modern Pantry. But what kind of failure? Or are you getting out of it? Are you getting is it is the is the bath turning ropey and nasty on you, or what? what what's the failure mode? It was uh, the bath was pretty. Uh, it was pretty thick but clear. Right. Okay. And what is the failure mode? What what's what's exactly is happening? Um, I I guess when uh, when I'm dropping the the base into it, um, I'm actually getting different results. I tried with three different things in the same bath. Um, I, I was using a, a rum, uh, using calcium lactate and a little bit of xanthan gum, mm-hmm. and it was dropping into it and almost immediately dispersing. Um, On the surface? Using, uh, or, or very near the surface, yeah. Right, okay. Okay, next. I'm wondering whether your problem is you're not getting. I'm wondering whether your problem is you're not getting a good drop out of it. Okay, one of the problems with reverse spherification is you need to have a fairly thin alginate base in order to get the stuff to drop in properly. And if it, if it, if it's if the if it's too viscous, right, you'll just get like a pancake effect on the surface where it'll maybe it'll hollow out a little bit, but you'll it'll just spread wide, and then it'll form like kind of wisps of gel within it. Was it gelling? It just yeah. was dispersing. No, it, it was it was gelling, and, and that when you when you're describing wisps of gel, that's almost exactly what the what the rum base was doing. Right. I think so, your main problem um, there is you maybe need to go thicker on the on the rum, or add some heft to the. Because also remember, alcohol is fairly light compared to. Uh, so you add some heft to it. I mean, with either sugar or glucose syrup or something like that to add some heft, so that it wants to go down. Add some viscosity to it, like even over and above the xanthan gum. Another problem with xanthan. Did you did you get all of the air out of the rum before you dropped it in, or was it still cloudy? Um, it was. You know, the rum was just a little bit cloudy. I let it sit for for several hours, but it was still uh, a little bit cloudy. Do you have access to a vacuum machine? Uh, no, I don't. Right. So your only really your only really way to do it is to wait for it to kind of settle out. But if you don't right. want to add xanthan, you could add other. You, you're going to need to add some xanthan, but you could add some other bodying agents like glucose syrup or like uh, corn syrup, something to give it some extra density so it wants to sit. And you're going to need to make sure that the stuff you're dropping in doesn't have air bubbles because the air bubbles are just going to sit on the surface and prevent a good drop from forming. What percentage algae and what brand are you using? Um, I, I don't know what the brand was. It came from one of your sponsors when you mentioned a moment ago. Right. Um, and I'm, I was using, uh, what is it, uh, two and a half grams to, uh, to 500 grams of water. Uh, two to five is four, is four to one. So, so 0.4%? Yeah, it sounds. Four grams in a liter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds right. Yeah, that's low. Sounds right. Two, two, two and a, yeah, yeah, right. That's really low. I mean, in other words, um, so, uh, I mean, it, it, everything depends on the alginate. Now, I've never used Modernist Pantry's alginate, so I don't know kind of uh, what, what's going on with it. But, you know, um, alginates come in a variety of viscosities, from a low viscosity alginate to a high viscosity alginate. 
the one I use, I use a medium and a high viscosity alginate from FMC Biopolymers, the one that I typically use when I'm doing this. And with those, you want to, for the high viscosity one, I usually want to be around 8 grams in a liter in order to get like a good gel to form. And uh, the other one, maybe even, you could go a little lower with the high viscosity one, like, you know, 7 grams uh, per liter. Uh, but you, like down at 0.4, it's going to be hard to form a quick thing, and that might also be causing your dispersal problems. If you And by the way, alginate, especially if you have all the stuff in the back, you can heat it to get rid of the bubbles. And in fact, when you heat it, you're going to be uh, decreasing its viscosity. So if you're having viscosity issues, you can do reverse spherification into a hot alginate bath. It's not going to hurt anything. You don't want it to be so hot that it's going to boil the alcohol out of your rum. Right, but assuming that that's not a problem, uh, you can go that way. Let me give you another thing you can do. Depending on what size of balls you want to make, you can you can if you have a silt pat, you can just take. And this way, you don't need to thicken it at all. You can just take drops of uh, and put drops onto a silt pat, and then uh, let them freeze up. If they're small enough drops, that you know they'll pancake out, but you'll still be able to get a good uh, good drop on it. And then just put those drops in one by one. They'll thaw almost instantly, especially if you're using a hot alginate bath, and that'll let you get it underneath. But I, I would try to get your alginate bath higher than uh, four grams per liter. I would get it up to like uh, you want it as low as you can, obviously, but you, you might want to try like seven, eight grams per liter. Uh, try okay. it hot. Make sure you get all the air out of it, and try to put a little more body into the um, into your into your uh, rum, how, how much calcium lactate per liter were you adding? You were using calcium oh. lactate or calcium lactate gluconate? Uh, I was using calcium lactate. Okay, how much? And I was at I was at thirty grams per liter. Thirty. Uh, correct. Uh, says three percent. That's that's high. Is that what they is that what they told you on the website to add? Uh, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Could you taste it? I mean, that's enough calcium. In other words, that should work. I mean, yeah, I could, I, I, I could taste it a little bit. Right. Uh, in general, I mean, that's high. You could get the calcium lactate gluconate. It's going to make a softer gel. But the first thing I would do is get it gelling properly. Once it's gelling properly, then start dialing the calcium back. And so what I would do then is I would make your rum mixture first, right? And then I would hold some back with no calcium in it at all. Right, and then and then take your one and add the calcium to it, and then as an experiment, just keep adding the uncalcium stuff back to it until it doesn't gel right anymore, and then you'll you'll get a feeling for exactly how much calcium is going to be required in that application. Okay, that sounds sounds like a good idea. That's what I'll do. Another problem with reverse purification is that if the two, if the balls um, touch each other underneath the alginate bath, they'll glue each they'll glue themselves together. Because of uh, the, in other words, the alginate will start bonding, and then they'll be hard to break apart. So you want to make sure when you take them out to to very quickly put them into uh, basically like a pure water solution to get them separated and to rinse the extra alginate off, and then to store them in a back. Basic. The best thing to do is to have enough of your uh, flavor base left to store the balls in the flavor base. If you store the balls in the flavor base, which has some calcium in it, they'll last forever or until they spoil. Right. Uh, if you store 
store them in water, then uh, all of the very quickly all of the flavor and color will be leached out of them. Uh, and it's somewhere in between is to store it in a basically a sugar and alcohol solution of the same relative sweetness and same relative alcohol level as your balls, and that that's kind of the intermediate. So when I the the thing that I use reverse verification for most is uh, maple syrup balls that I put inside of pancakes, and when I do that. I basically store them in the maple syrup. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. All okay. right. So give that a shot. Well, good. Thank yeah, thank, thank you so much. Yeah, awesome show. Listen to you guys all the time. Have been for a while. So. Thank, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Yeah. All right. So how are you doing, Nastasha? Good. How are you? All right. All right. What's up? Nothing. Just looking at cues. Oh, we got cues? What's going no, on? No, I think it's fine. All right. All right. So, uh, anything new happening in the world of uh, cooking issues slash Nastasha Lopez the past uh, week? No, Dave. Nothing. Nothing. Just Had nothing going. Actually, we've been working. We've been. I've been with you like twenty four. Yeah, we've been at the bar. Like basically, nothing new can happen except we've been at the bar, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's basically the only new things that that happen. I tried yesterday, uh, so we've had some calls from a show that wants, wants us on, maybe, in California, and we've been doing some crazy tests for that. So we've been, yesterday I had to make a hurricane. Are you familiar with the hurricane? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's like, you know, nowadays a god-awful rum drink. It was invented by a guy, Pat O'Brien, apparently, in New Orleans, who was given a whole bunch of rum. Uh, right after Prohibition, he opened up, and basically he couldn't buy the good liquors from the distributor unless he also took rum, which at the time no Nobody really wanted, and so he had to find something to do with all of that rum, and so he mixed like a, a couple kinds of rum and passion fruit uh, syrup and pomegranate syrup, uh, and you know some other stuff. And there, there's the hurricane. It was served in giant glasses, basically to get you effed up, which is how it works now in New Orleans anyway. But the quality is just even lower than, than back then. The New Orleans, you know, is like the home of the crappy fake daiquiri shop. In fact, last time I was in New Orleans for Tales of the Cocktail, uh, they, one of the uh, bartenders was working at a dinner that I was at. I forget who it was. And uh, she had um, ordered a daiquiri machine to come. And the fella who showed up to tweak out the daiquiri machine had no idea what an actual daiquiri was. And we made and served him an actual daiquiri. He's like, no, no, that's not a, that's not a daiquiri. Like a daiquiri is basically Kool-Aid and like rum in one of these frozen machines. It's horrible, horrible, horrible stuff. The current hurricane is made with a powdered mix that might as well be Kool-Aid, uh, but it just doesn't taste quite as good as Kool-Aid does, if that if that's humanly possible. Uh, so it's just, a, it's just a horrible, horrible thing. Anyway, so we tried to make a, a, what we thought was a good hurricane. Uh, so I basically uh, took uh, pomegranate, smacked out the seeds, uh, muddled them because I didn't want to blend them to get the bitterness in from the little pips on the seeds, added them to passion fruit puree, hit it with SPL, uh, and spun it out in a centrifuge and got an amazing bright red, awesome flavored kind of passion fruit slash uh, pomegranate syrup that you know is – Hard enough to use in place of lime juice in a daiquiri-style recipe. Made it. Actually tasted quite good. Problem was that the, the show wanted me to do something carbonated, so I carbonated it and it tasted awful, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty much? Mm-hmm. You agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't really like most carbonated rum drinks except for like Dark and Stormies and things like that because the ginger really helps it out. But like I think I said this before on the show. Like carbonated rum often ends up tasting like Cisco. If you remember Cisco, which was a carbonated 20% alcohol beverage from the from the 80s or 90s. It was just dreadful, dreadful, dreadful stuff. But uh, then uh, at the behest of some of the, the bartenders, I think Tristan and Nick at, uh, Booker, over at Booker and Dax, our bar, uh, was like, let's make a ginicane. And we made a ginicane. We made like a gin hurricane. And that was delicious. 
Delicious, delicious. Anyway, so that's the kind of crap we're working on nowadays. Okay. So uh, go call in more questions, by the way, to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. We have a comment in on last week's show from Paul uh, who in uh, – it's about – remember we had someone who wanted to know how to tell whether if their mom was allergic to a particular kind of fish because their mom was allergic to fish scales. Mm-hmm. And we uh, – or no, sorry, not fish scales, to uh, – fish with scales and we had a discussion that basically the scale is just a marker of where the fish is in the evolutionary chain and so they need to stay away from that uh, particular a whole group of fish uh, Paul uh, enjoyed our explanation of it but had an interesting way to very simply find out whether or not it's got scales and that is is it kosher? Paul says, check the internet to see if a particular fish is kosher, i.e. if it's permissible under Jewish dietary laws. There are always tons of Q&As on the internet about what is and isn't kosher. Kosher fish must have scales as well as fins. Please note that the inverse is not necessarily true. It could have scales but not be kosher, but this might definitely be an easy first test for her. Kosher equals definitely has scales, so your mom definitely can't have it, and not kosher e- uh, equals might not have scales. So, in other words, if it it is kosher your mom can't have it but just because it's not kosher doesn't mean your mom can have it makes sense mm-hmm. very good thanks paul that's a good idea uh and then you know beyond that go and look up uh where it is in the evolutionary chain uh and see you know where where it fits is it a you know teleos etc etc okay uh two from matthew and this question goes out to the uh good people in the engineering room jack and carlos uh, i'm a big fan of your show and spend plenty of time listening to the archives it always helps my dishwashing slash house cleaning time go down a little smoother can you believe someone's actually doing work while they're listening it's crazy right yeah it's nice i like that uh anyway why jack do you cut off the last five minutes or so from any of the shows on the archives? It's important that we hear every last word that Nastasha and I have to say. Thanks, Matthew. Well, I don't know if it's important to hear every last word we have to say, not but uh, but uh, Jack, not to put you on the spot, or is Jack back there, or Carlos? What's the explanation for that? What's going on? They're stunned. Wait, Jack's coming. We're, we'll look into it. <laughs> it should be there, but... All right, all right, all right. <laughs> all right, Matthew, we'll take care of it. Okay, so listen, with that, let's go to our first commercial break. Call all of your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128, Cooking no Issues. It don't matter anyway. You can rely on the old man's money. You can rely on the old man's money. It's a bitch, girl, but it's gone too far because you know it don't matter anyway. Say money, money won't get you too far, get you too far. Take full responsibility for show cutouts. Sorry, yeah. sorry, guys. Uh, well, that's no problem. But I'll tell you something. I hate it when 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 she lets it go too far because she knows it doesn't freaking matter because she can rely on the old man's money. It's so disappointing, isn't it? <laughs> so disappointing. You know, you should like, stand on your own. Don't rely on the old man's money. Anyway, uh, apparently we have a caller. Caller, you are on the air. Hi. Uh, I have a question. I, I have a 
I'm looking to do the uh, low temperature cooking. And I have uh, for beer brewing, I have my uh, my hot liquor tank is controlled by a PID. Right. And I was wondering if there was any issues with using such a large volume of water because it would probably be about 10 gallons. 10 gallons. Uh, well, how many watts is your heater? Uh, I've got a, I, I've actually got two. I've got one that's 5,500 watt and one that's 4,500 watt, and then I've got a pump that I can use to circulate back into it. All right, to, that, keep it, to keep it moving. All right, with that kind of wattage, uh, so I'm, I'm going to do a quick calculation here. A thousand watts, about 28 liters. Assume it's fairly linear. Yeah, you should be fine, as long as your pump gets good uh, movement through it, and as long as your PID is stabilizing uh, within like a couple of tenths of a degree up or down. Uh, which is it? Is it stabilizing properly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you shouldn't have any problem. Uh, you know, just you just want to make sure that you don't have any huge dead spots in the circulation, and that when you put your packages in, that they, um, that they, that, you know, that there's a lot of that there's water circulating around them. As long as you have water circulating on all sides, you should be okay. Uh, it, it, the other thing I'd be c- cautious of on certain items, if you're going to do eggs, is if you're circulating that much water, you don't want it to be too too violent, or the stuff's going to get knocked about in there. Uh, or, or you could have a situation where if you don't have the stuff properly contained, the the, the circulation is just going to push it all to one corner of the bath. All of your bags will pile up, and then the the bags in the center are going to take a long time to come up to temperature, which could be problematic in certain recipes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, your, your wattage should be more than enough. Um, I've never had the uh, pleasure of fooling around with a circulator uh, that's uh, five kilowatts, but it sounds like it should be a lot of fun. What are you cooking? You know, uh, I'm just kind of glad to do everything. Uh, probably, you know, I have chicken, so probably a lot of eggs. Probably what? I'm having a little bit of a bad eggs. connection. What did you say? Eggs. What do you say, rather? Eggs? Yeah, Probably um, a lot of eggs. Yeah, a lot of eggs, a lot of chicken for the most part. All right, so if you're, uh, if you, yeah, so again, just make sure that the eggs don't get knocked around uh, too much. And the other issue, obviously, is you're using quite a lot of power. Uh, you, you know, um, so if you had the, if you have the PID controller and whatnot, you might want to make a secondary bath that's smaller, like you know, two kilowatts and like twenty-eight liters or something like that, which would be is twice what was normally be used in twenty-eight liters to get up to temperature really, really fast. But just you don't want to be in a situation where you're pulling out those big guns all the time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, and and I assume you're running that guy off two twenty. So if you're going to run that guy, I, off, what? Uh, yeah. I, yeah. So if you run that thing off of 120 instead, right, uh, you'll get uh, about a quarter of the power. So that'll get it down to normal range. So if you just make an alternate plug situation and run it off of 120 instead of 220, assuming the amperage works out okay, uh, you should then be able to use it as a lower wattage uh, item. It might be a problem with your pump. You might need to get a secondary pump, but you shouldn't need to get a second heater element. Okay. Does that make um, sense? I have a, yeah, that, 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 that helps a lot. Um, now, if I was looking at, uh, you've got me very interested in this rotary evaporator, and I have money to burn. Ha! So, good, um, nice. That's a good problem. How how do you how do you clean them? I mean, I'd obviously have to buy it used. So how would I? I don't know where it'll been. How do you how do you clean the glassware? 
Well, that's a good question. So, I mean, there's two kinds of problems when you buy laboratory gear. And the one problem is uh, kind of inorganic poisons, like straight up old school poisons. Uh, and also organic-based poisons, and the other are kind of biohazards. So most likely you're not going to have a biohazard in your Rotovap, although it's it's entirely possible. I'm pretty sure that the original one I bought off of eBay had carbon tetrachloride in it, which is nasty stuff. Uh, so I just um, – I, I bought, a, you know, a, a, basically a glass cleaner. I think, I think of the brand was Alkanox, and I just cleaned the ever-loving hell out of it. Uh, if you have access, uh, I also, in case there was a biological agent in it, I also bleached the hell out of it. You know what I mean? Basically soaked in bleach, ultrasonic cleaners, yeah. huge bunches changes of water, a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of changes of water, and detergents that will attack both polar and nonpolar things because the odds are there's a bunch of nonpolar stuff there too, which might be, you know, vile, vile stuff. Um, yeah. So, you know, just do that again and again. Also note that if you're buying a standard rotovap with a condenser, re- regular coil condenser, that one's going to be harder to clean because it's impossible to physically attack all the nooks and crannies on that. You can't get your fist into it. Whereas if you're getting – what the heck was that? Was that? It sounds like someone just died on a roof. Um, if, you, if you get a cold finger condenser, you can disassemble it basically and get your hands into it and totally clean it out. And if you're really lucky, you can get a cold finger condenser that also has a coiled insert sleeve and then you get the best of all worlds you can use it as a cold finger condenser you can use it as a regular coil condenser and you can clean it but it's very difficult to clean out the inside of 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 the condenser and it just takes a lot of time and flushes of detergent and water um you could maybe like a percarbonate cleaner like i have a powdered brewery wash yeah, fifty pounds of it. Would, would that would that work for that? I mean, I'd look and see what whether or not uh, what they say on that is how it works on um, you know chemical deposits that aren't uh, you know like basically you, you know you'll be able to get rid of most of the polar stuff using normal detergents and most of the nonpolar stuff, frankly. But I would just I haven't looked at it in a long time because it's been a couple of been like five years since I bought a Rotovap on eBay, uh, and so I would just look up. For instance, like what the procedures are for cleaning out, like pick a couple of vicious nonpolar solvents like carbon tetrachloride, and just find out what the kind of uh, what the kind of decontamination procedure is for it. But yeah, you know, maybe the brewery one would work. I mean, I, like I say, I bought Alkanox just because that's what they use in labs. It's not that expensive, but I'm sure you can get a hold of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I would specifically look up. I would choose a couple of nasty solvents. Uh, polar and 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 nonpolar, and just check out the basic decontamination procedures for them. Okay, um, and that cold finger condenser you're talking about is that like a Liebig condenser for uh, for a still? No, no. The cold the, the cold finger one is just a basically it's a cone shaped sleeve inside inside of the round condenser, and uh, you fill it with uh, in the lab you would typically use dry ice uh, acetone. I use either dry ice ethanol or um, or liquid nitrogen. Uh, I actually almost always use liquid nitrogen because it's actually easier for me to get than dry ice for storage reasons. Um, but um, the problem with a cold finger condenser, if you're not using something super cold like dry ice and ethanol dry ice acetone, is uh, it has a very low surface area uh, compared to a um, – because it's not indented like like you know some of the condensers you're dealing with. So, uh, yeah. so it's got a fairly low surface area compared to a coil condenser. I see. Yeah. Okay. All right. Is that helpful? Yes, 
very helpful. Thank you. All right, and uh, you know, write us back and tell us uh, what happened with your big mega circulator. Will do. All right, thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, today's show is sponsored by Modernist Pantry, supplying innovative ingredients for the modern cook. Do you love to experiment with new cooking techniques and ingredients, but hate, hate, hate to overspend for pounds of supplies with only a few grams are needed per application? Modernist Pantry has a solution. They offer a wide range of modern ingredients and packages that make sense for the home cook and enthusiast, and most cost only around five bucks. Saving you time, money, and storage space. I'm going to edit it myself to have either enthusiast or whatever. Whether you're looking for hydrocolloids, pH buffers, or even meat glue, you'll find it at Modernist Pantry. And if you need something that they don't carry, just ask. Chris Anderson and his team will be happy to source it for you with inexpensive shipping to any country in the world. Modernist Pantry is your one-stop shop for innovative cooking ingredients. Modernist Pantry carries several types of modified starches for thickening, including Ultratex 3, Ultratex 8, and Ultrasperse 3. Fans of cooking issues that place an order of $25 or more before next week's show will get a free package of Ultratex 3 to play with. Simply use the promo code CI71 when placing your order online at ModernistPantry.com. Visit ModernistPantry.com today for all of your modernist cooking needs. All right, listen. Listen. For some reason, a lot of chefs started using uh, Ultratex, um, you know, years ago. And what, what Ultratex is, is it's a great product made by National Starch. And it's, it's a part of a group of things that are ba- basically they're pre-cooked starch. They're, they're pre-hydrated, pre-cooked. So you don't need to heat those starches, Ultratex, for instance, to get them to have their thickening capacity like you would with a normal starch, right? So that's great. That's fantastical. Uh, the problem with Ultratex is, is because it's been uh, prehydrated, precooked. If you add it to liquids and you don't have like a high shear mixture, mixer, or, or you can't shear it in quite a bit, or you don't mix it into butter like in a Burmani or any one of those things, mix it with sugar, anything, corn syrup, whatever, it tends to uh, to glob up, to turn into kind of globules, uh, you know, pearl up the same way as if you added starch to. Uh, hot gravy. It works exactly the same as if you add starch to hot gravy. So you need to really uh, hit it with a blender or something like that to get it to disperse properly. And that's because uh, w- when you add starch to gravy, typically what you'll do is you'll add starch to a cold liquid first, form a slurry, right, so that all the little starch particles get separated, and then you add it to a liquid, and then eh, everything's kosher. You heat it up, and it's good, and it, and it hydrates and all that stuff. Ultra sperse, right, not tex, ultra sperse. Burse is a uh, an agglomerated uh, pre-cooked, you know, pre-hydrated starch, and what that is is it looks like little kind of uh, it looks kind of grainy when you look at it. Instead of being a fine powder, it looks kind of grainy, and it's designed to not glo- not kind of stick together into balls. And you can stir that one into things to thicken it up, and you don't need a lot of high shear mixing. Now, the reason that industrially ultra sperse isn't used as much as Ultratex is ultra sperse is uh, a lot more expensive than Ultratex. But in most home and like high-end chef kind of things, the cost uh, isn't that much greater and is not that much of a, of a concern because you're not using that much of it. And so I would always recommend, if you can, to go with Ultra Spurs instead of Ultratex, all from the good folks at National Starch. All right. Does that make any damn sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Chris, maybe next week give away the Ultra Spurs. The Ultra Spurs. What about commercial break? Already? It's been 15 minutes. Really? Mm-hmm. All right. We'll go to our second commercial break. Call in all of your questions to 718-497-2128. 718-497-2128. Cooking issues. What I want you got in mind behind the hand. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hall and Oates Fest today, huh? Is that Nastasha or is that... No, uh, that's them. That's Carlos. That's Carlos? Carlos, good call on the Hall and Oates Fest. You know, Nastasha and I have kind of like a running thing that we like... <laughs> Dave completely... Uh, bastardizes Hollow Yeah, well, I'll rock out to it. But they, they like, you know, so like, if you've seen what's that show, like The Wedding Singer, where the guy sings yeah. with all the curses, I tend to sing songs with like many, many curses interspersed in them. And so, like, what we feel is like, you know, uh, you, you know how when you go to a concert, there's that guy who stands in the background screaming the song, right? Yeah. So, like, we imagine that I'm like that guy screaming, but instead of giving like the rock and roll fingers, like, you know, like the. Ah! Uh, rock and roll fingers I've just got my I'm just like flipping them the bird but I'm in like the front row screaming along like jamming out like to rich girl gi- yeah to rich girl giving giving like hollow notes to bird and they're like what the hell is this guy doing what, what's wrong with this guy you see how long it takes before I get ejected from the concert you know those guys in the front row don't play they pay so much for those tickets especially on a reunion tour they're not they're not playing around with some joker like flipping off the the, the band and screaming curses Freaking rich girl. Anyway, okay. By the way, I know that was a scary sound we heard before, yeah, but it seems that? like Indie Jesus is okay. <laughs> oh, oh well. man. That's good business. <laughs> we have checked the building. Indie Jesus is okay. Okay. That's good stuff. Jesus Christ Superstar is coming out at the end of next month on Broadway again, Dave. Yeah, but look. Okay, look. Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, aside from the fact that, you know, you kind of, as much as I love uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, and it's an Andrew Lloyd Webber thing, right? As much as I love him, I have to, from a more kind of rational standpoint, hate it. Why? You know what I mean? Well, because, like, you know, I mean, all the people who are seriously into musicals are like, oh, my God, Andrew Lloyd Webber, right? Even, yeah. But I like that stuff. You do. I, I do. I you love do. that stuff. Jesus Christ Superstar especially. But the problem is, is that in my head, I have, you know, the original kind of voice of Judas is in my head. And if I go and hear somebody else, and the original guy is dead, by the way, so it's not like they're going to bring that guy back. Uh, and, uh, you know, if I hear somebody else playing Judas, I'll just be like, oh, my God, what is that? It's the same way, that, you know, that they redid uh, Heat Miser, Snow Miser. Or Charlie Brown's voice. They redid yeah. Charlie Brown's mm-hmm. voice? Mm-hmm. Horrible. Mm-hmm. Horrible. Mm-hmm. Horrible. <laughs> Awful. Horrible. Uh, you know, it's like some things, you know, whatever. Anyway, you're going to make me go see it, aren't you? You should take your sons. What, what the heck do they want to see Jesus Christ Superstar for? They don't like It's me. I like musicals. My son Booker would be so bored. He would be screaming the entire time, when's it over? When's it over? <laughs> and like they'd be singing, you know, what's the buzz? And he'd be asking me when the buzz is going to be over. I, I can't. You know, I can't. I can't. Anyway. Uh, question from, okay, I can't see who the question's from. Oh, from Derek. Uh, hi again, I want to make my own sherry vinegar. Is it possible to take a red wine vinegar mother and put it in sherry and wind up with sherry vinegar? Are there any other methods? Thanks for your help and insight and keep being awesome. Derek, we will try. We will try to start being awesome. (laughs) Anyway. Uh, okay, so here's the trick. Uh, when you're making, um, the the answer is yes, it's going to work. Uh, but... Uh, when you're making vinegar uh, from wine, you're typically using a lower uh, alcohol wine, right? So sherry, which you know is fortified, is uh, is coming in at a much higher ABV than w- it, than is good for uh, the vinegar. So you're going to want to dilute to, uh, and I looked at a couple different sources, but between kind of seven and nine percent alcohol, and nine percent is pretty high. Like you, you might want to start down lower at like seven percent uh, alcohol. Okay, uh, so. 
so you're going to basically figure out what the alcohol content of your sherry is and then dilute it down with uh, with whatever. But get the alcohol percentage down. If the alcohol is too high, you'll inhibit the acetobacter, and that's going to be uh, it's going to be a problem. Okay. Uh, another thing that uh, I've read, I don't know whether it's true or not, but is that if a wine is very highly sulfured, has a lot of sulfur dioxide in it. Uh, that can also be a problem uh, for um, for the acetobacter. But uh, other than that, it, it should basically be uh, no problem. Now, uh, I looked up uh, Sun- Sunset Magazine has a, a big how-to on this, including the vinegar. things. And remember, I don't know whether Sunset's any good anymore, but back in the day, in the early 70s, Sunset Magazine, which is from California, had like some kind of butt-kicking books on like how to get a really butt-kicking garden, how to make bonsais, how to bake bread. I mean, Sunset Magazine— But it was all like desert-y. No, desert even. No, it's California. Not California. I mean, I don't know, Arizona. Did they read it in Arizona? It was like, yeah, like you're from LA. I'm sure you had Sunset Magazine coming out of your ears in the morning. No, I think it's more of like a desert Arizona, New Mexico, California. Hey, look, you know why it's called Sunset? Because the sun sets on the freaking West Coast, right? It's a West Coast thing, Southern West Coast, right? Mm-hmm. But anyway, <laughs> the books used to kick butt. That's all I'm saying is that Sunset Books, you wouldn't think it. It seems like very consumery, but they're books. I used to enjoy them as I was growing up. I haven't read them in a long time. But if you, if you look it up, uh, and you know who they asked as their consultant for it? Paula Wolfert. Yeah, who Nastasha and I met when she was writing a, like some sort of a clay pot cookbook. Is that true or false? She, yeah, she had just finished it. Her house was freaking full of clay pots. I'm talking like... She had a greater volume of clay pots than I have an air volume in my apartment because her house is quite large compared to my apartment. Anyway, um, Paula recommends that you start small. In other words, if you get your mother, you add a little bit of the wine to start with. You got to make sure that air can get to it because forming forming acetic acid, it's it's an aerobic activity. There's air. So in fact, when you're doing a fast procedure, uh, so the, 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 the old school way is uh, I don't know whether it's called the Orleans or the Orléans because I've never heard anyone pronounce it, but that's the old school way of making vinegar where basically you take a cask, you drill holes in it, put a screen over it so bugs can't get in, you let air get in. It's the air that allows the acetic uh, acid, uh, the acetobacter, the acetic acid bacteria to grow uh, and therefore turn your, uh, turn your wine or turn whatever, your cider into vinegar. If there's no air, they won't grow. If after they're done, you continue to allow air in, then the acetic acid will be lost. It'll oxidize and go out. So you have to strike a balance there. If you want to make it quickly, then what you have to do is increase the surface area that the bacteria can grow on. And so you can do things like mix wood chips in with the, with the, uh, with the, vine- with the base or whatever and then have the mother on top. You don't want to swamp out the mother because you have to get the population of bacteria relatively high. So what most people do to maintain their mother is remove like three-quarters of your vinegar and then put without disturbing it put uh you know the rest back in in terms of fresh liquid and then you can keep it going eventually your vinegar mother will probably fall to the bottom uh you scoop it out hopefully a new one will form because you'll have a colony in there uh, we spoke about vinegar mother what it is a, a while ago but it's mainly cellulose bacterial cellulose so it floats on top and eventually maybe it will fall to the bottom um Another thing, and uh, you know, I'm not an expert by any means in, in vinegar, but um, after you make it, 
you're probably going to want to age it to kind of mellow it out a little bit. Some people age it just on its own. Some people age it in wooden barrels, uh, which are getting increasingly difficult to get. The small wooden barrels are getting increasingly difficult to get. When you are aging it, uh, people tend to pasteurize it to stop further bacterial change, for instance, that might turn the vinegar, uh, you know, to, to actually consume some of the acid in the vinegar and ruin it. Uh, so you can either exclude air or pasteurize it or exclude air and pasteurize it and age it to get a variety of different flavors. How's that? Good. Make sense? Mm-hmm. So, semi-sense? Mm-hmm. Partial sense? Okay. Uh, from Matthew. Hi, Nastasha and Dave. I hope you're doing well. And a big congratulations on the opening of Booker and Dax. Thank you. I think it's a pretty good bar. I mean, like, you know, we're still working. It's going to get better and better every day. But I think, I'm, I think I'm proud of what we're doing. What about you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm proud of what we're doing. Okay. Uh, I was recently given, which doesn't mean that we're nowhere near where we want to be, but I'm proud of what we're doing. Anyway, uh, I was recently given a Cuisinart ice cream machine, the kind where you pre-freeze the canister. I have made some excellent ice cream, and with the help of some pastry chef friends, have learned to add some tweaks to my recipes that keep the ice cream from losing its smooth texture in the freezer and stay a little bit more stable at room temperature. And the two things uh, that uh, Matthew's adding are glucose syrup and gelatin. Uh, is there a simple formula for replacing sugar with glucose that could be applied to any ice cream recipe? My primary goal is to give ice cream a better texture post-freezer storage. Thanks, Matthew. Uh, okay, so the simple there's no there's no simple anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, which is which is you know always, always the problem. And uh, I forgot to look up before I came in what the um, what the solids uh, ratio, what the solids content of glucose syrup is, but I think it hovers around 80%. I think it's in there. And you have to figure out what the DE, the dextrose equivalent of the glucose syrup is to figure out how, how sweet it is. But the book that I recommend, and most of it's online on Google Books, is called Glucose Syrups, Technology and Applications. And there's a section on ice creams in there uh, that talks about it. But basically what the glucose syrup the glucose syrup is accomplishing uh, a couple of things. It has a certain amount of sweetness to it, right? Uh, not a lot, but a certain amount. It depresses the freezing point of the uh, of the ice cream base somewhat, right? But also, it uh, drastically increases the viscosity of the ice cream base. And what that's doing is it's going to give you a kind of a denser, better mouthfeel and also prevent uh, – inhibit crystallization. The gelatin will also help – with uh, crystallization, but uh, you know, and anything you add, any hydrocolloid you add is going to uh, help. Anything that increases the viscosity is going to help prevent crystallization from happening uh, once it's in your freezer afterwards. So uh, basically, what you want to do when you swap it out, let's assume that you don't want to. Um, let's assume that you don't want to change the sweetness of your of your recipe. Uh, so you have to look at what the relative sweetness of the glucose syrup is versus sugar. So your relative sweetness of uh, of, a, of like a 42 DE glucose syrup is half. It's half as sweet as sugar. We're using low DE glucose syrups when I usually do it, like a 28. And a 28 is like 0.4 of the relative sweetness of it. And that's on a dry, a dry weight basis, right? But the freezing depression – uh, so let's take glucose uh, 28 DE glucose syrup. It's a little under half the sweetness of uh, of sucrose, right? But it has uh, only half of the freezing point depression. So you need to add twice 
they like uh, once you take into account the water that's in it, you're gonna you're gonna remove let's say uh, you know 200 grams of sugar. You're gonna have to add 400 grams of solids from glucose 28 DE to have the same sweetness, but you'll have a lot more solids, so it'll be a lot denser. Uh, so this table is available on the Google Books, and you can get a, a sense of the relative freezing point depression and the relative sweetness for various different uh, different sweeteners. So, so let's say you didn't want to add like that. If you want to reduce the sweetness of something, right, but not really reduce uh, the, you know, not really change the freezing point depression or change the actual visco- viscosity of it much, you could add glucose syrup, and then you could depress the freezing point further by adding small amounts of alcohol. And there's ratios in this table in this book that you can look at. To really kind of get a better idea of what you're doing, but what whenever you're swapping out sugar, you're removing body, you're changing the freezing point depression, and you're changing the sweetness, and all of those things need to be accounted for uh, in an ice cream to balance out. So you, you know you don't want to change anyone drastically, uh, or or there's going to be problems. Just uh, what's cool about this book, the glucose syrup technology and applications in the ice cream section, is that rather than go into really kind of technical uh, explanations of trying to calculate things, they say, hey, look, uh, calculate everything relative to sucrose. So the sweetness relative to sucrose, table sugar, and the freezing point depression relative to sucrose. And then just get into your head that ice cream should have a, uh, like a, a sucrose relative uh, sweetness and relative freezing point depression because sucrose we're taking as one as unity of 13 to 18. So something with a, a with a suc- with with basically 13 so 13 percent sugar in it is going to be hard, right? And uns- not that sweet. And something with 18 percent is going to be relatively softer because it's going to be have more freezing point depression and relatively sweeter, right? And so by by calculating the relative freezing point depression and relative sweetness to sucrose, you can play around with recipes fairly easily and try to get uh, something that works for you. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I, I am being told – do I have any more questions or have I answered I them all? So. I've answered all the online questions. I am being told that I am out of time. So this has been Cooking Issues. Thank you and come again next week. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. You got my head all twisted. I just can't get it straight.